Good morning to you. Uh, our passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And as you begin to turn there, either in your Bibles or in your worship guides, I'll just remind you that we've made a little addition to the worship guide. If you look on page 11, uh, where you've got space for, for sermon notes, notice that we're always offering an idea for a child to draw a picture of something related to the sermon text. So today is running a race, and that is there's always an extra sheet of paper it comes with the children's worship guide, and uh, they are welcome to engage in that uh, during the sermon. And then we're also adding five questions for each week that are based on and tied to the sermon passage. So, listen, if you're doing something at home with your family, with your kids, to engage the faith and um, to, to immerse yourself in God's words, we're not interested in replacing that. But if you don't have something that you're doing, if you struggle to find some uh, consistency, regularity in what you're doing, then a very easy thing to do would be each day at dinner or breakfast, whenever your family gathers, is to read the passage that we're reading on that Sunday. And then on, on day one, say it's Monday for you, you ask question one, and that's you talk about question one around the table. On day two, Tuesday, you do question two. And you read the same passage every day, and that would be a great way to take some very small steps in terms of being in God's Word more regularly and growing uh, in that Word. And there's great fruit is born out of, um, if you do that, what you're essentially doing is meditating on the passage. You're spending extended time considering one particular passage, and when someone does that, great fruit is born from it. All right, let's turn our attention to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So we've been making our way through chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is a list of exemplars of the faith. We've considered all kinds of figures and their corresponding Old Testament passages who uh, the author of Hebrews holds out to the audience that he's writing to encourage them, to challenge them, saying, There have been significant figures who have come before you who have run their race of faith extremely well. By chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, he finally gets to where he's been headed all along, to the one true hero, the great hero, to Jesus Christ himself. And it's him that we are supposed to recognize both our runner and the race that we are to run. And in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the author is using um, very particular athletic language, borrowed directly from the Greek games in what he's writing. Uh, The phrases surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, laying aside every weight, laying aside sin which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. All of this is uh, Greco-Roman race-running language that the author has adopted to make his point, to use this metaphor. What he's saying is, you are in a race. There's not really an option about it. He's saying this is the condition of all those who follow after Jesus Christ. So it raises the notion for us that we had better take stock of the race that we're in. So we want to do a couple things this morning. We want to 
take stock of the race that we're in, acknowledging that we are in a race. But also, passages like this always bring up that tension that exists in the New Testament. You know, you can go to a place where Jesus says that, you know, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Then you come to a passage like this, says you better get running, right? Throw aside everything, you know, you're in a race. Hey, well, what? Is the burden easy and light, or do I need to be an elite marathoner? Right? This, how do I understand the tension between the New Testament when it talks in language like this? So these are the things we're going to wrestle with this morning. And as we take stock, the author of Hebrews offers us a number of um, well, particular ways in which we need to be thinking about our race. A number of ways we need to be evaluating the race that we're engaged in. And the first thing that he says to us is to remind us coming off this great list in Hebrews 11, is that you are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. This is number one. You are not alone in your race. You are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Now, the language here is very much of the stadium, of the the men running on the floor of the stadium, being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And so that's led some people to say, well, the notion here is that the crowd is cheering you on. That really hasn't been the agenda of the author of Hebrews at all. He's been holding out these examples, not necessarily to say simply that they're cheering for you, but that they are actually examples to look to, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to think through your own race because they've run their race well before you. This is a challenge to us because we often like to think of, well, I don't know that we like to do it, but I think there's something about our sinful disposition and selfish disposition, that we tend to find ourselves in a place where our race becomes terribly individualistic and we, we like to tell ourselves stories like my race is, is harder than other people's. Or, um, you know, I'm suffering more in the midst of my race than other people are suffering. And you think about it, what, what do you, why would you want to tell a story like that? What do you get out of it? Well, Right? You're pretty important if your race is harder than other people's. Well, that makes you pretty significant. Or if you're suffering more than other people, that makes you, again, more important, more significant than other people. And I think we can all find ourselves in that place from time to time. My race is, is harder than their race. Reminds me of uh, Paul when he quotes a passage from 1 Kings speaking about Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and at one point he's depressed. He's, uh, he feels like God has deserted him, that God has not been faithful to his calling. And, and the part that Paul quotes goes like this. Elijah says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But Paul asks, what is God's reply to him? God's reply is, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. How easy it was for Elijah in the midst of what he was experiencing to say, I am alone. I alone am faithful. God, you have deserted me. You have not met me in the midst of this. And God says, no, actually, I've preserved 7,000 of you. You are by no means alone. Nor is your race uh, worse necessarily than the others, the, the others that, the other races that the other people have been called to run. And so there is a real sense in which the author of Hebrews is saying, 
in the midst of having this tendency to, to think that your race may be hardest or to think that you're suffering more in the midst of your race, the author is, is saying, no, you must be reminded that a great cloud of witnesses precedes you. Which also intimates that there is presently a great cloud of faithful people running at the same time that you are. And the message, frankly, is not so subtle to get over yourself. Right? Next week, as we finish, by going into the rest of chapter 12, the author of Hebrews will go on and say, who of you have resisted to the point so far of shedding blood? Right? That, that's a very eloquent way of saying, in, in, a, in a contemporary athletic paraphrase, you need to suck it up. Right? You don't have any idea what it was to suffer in the way that Jesus suffered. Nor have you suffered in the way that these who have preceded you have suffered. You need to take stock and remind yourself that you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Right? That doesn't sound very compassionate, does it? It's, the author is not intending to be compassionate here. To a group that's thinking about walking away from their faith, he says, listen, let's really take stock of what's going on. Let's measure how hard really your race is. So that's the first thing he has to say. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Do not forget it. The second thing that he has to say is that training and discipline are required. You are in a race. You must think like a person who races. You must lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. This perhaps will be a bit of a distraction, but right, the language that's being used is from the Greek games and Women were not allowed in the Greek games, and when the men lined up to run their race, they laid aside everything. Right? Greek athletes in ancient times competed naked. They wanted nothing to encumber them in the pursuit of their goal. Right? And this is the language that's being used. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, you are, you are bogged down by weights, things of this world. You are hampered by the sin which clings to you so closely. You must lay it all aside if you're going to run your race well. This requires discipline and attention on your part. So, what do you look like as a runner? Not a real runner, but as a spiritual runner, right? Are you in the right gear, kind of svelte, right? You're ready to knock out a fairly fast mile, or you have an iPhone in one hand and a jelly donut in the other, or you're so busy, consumed watching something, you don't even know that the gun has gone off and you're not ready for the race. And it almost raises the question, do we actually believe that we're in a race? Right? If we, if we believe we're in a race, then that necessitates that we're engaged in training. We're serious about discipline. But if we're not serious about training or discipline, then do we believe that we're actually in a race? There's an interesting uh, study done a few years ago um, people in the world of college are wrestling with the reality that, that students today study much less, they spend much less time studying than they did five decades ago. Right? Over the last 50 years, uh, 50 years ago, your average student spent uh, 24 to 25 hours studying each week. Right? Today, your average student spends 14 hours studying each week. That's significant. It's a 10-hour drop per week right? over a 15-course semester. Uh, that's 150 hours of lost time that's going to make a significant difference in what a student knows. So having observed this reality, the great question became, well, why? 
Why are students studying so much less today than they did before? And of course, everybody rants, well, it's technology, right? Social media, jumping on Facebook, computers, distractions, games. This is the problem. And interestingly, they they said, well, not so much. Uh, The real drop uh, came between 1961 and 1981, right? Before the advent of the technological revolution, where the drop went from 24.4 hours to 16.8 hours. Since 1981, it's only dropped essentially two hours. So what happened during that period where uh, studies declined dramatically? And uh, a couple of things are brought to the fore. No one's exactly sure. You can't point to one thing and say, this is why students study so much less. But professors said, one thing's for sure, the students we oversee are 10 times busier than we were. They're doing 10 times the number of activities. They're involved in government and changing the world and athletics and Greek life. And when we were students, you maybe did one thing, but other than that, you focused on your studies. So that's one big difference. The other big difference came between 61 and 81, where the the academy, colleges shifted, and uh, there was a movement that came out of the 60s for students to evaluate professors. Now, it's pretty normal for students to evaluate the professors and critique them. You fill out an evaluation form, and those are weighted pretty seriously. And what the professor said is it's, it's created an interesting um, relationship between the students and the professors. It's almost unspoken, but they say what has happened is um, if it's, it's understood that if the professors aren't too hard on the students, then the students won't be too hard on the professors. The students aren't inhibited in moving forward in college, and the professors aren't, their tenure isn't brought into question with the raises. They're not threatened in their job security. And so they've existed in this place, but as a result, uh, the quality of what's being done has suffered. Right? So, and in the midst of this suffering and in the midst of this lack of rigor, right, you hear all the time that a, a, a gentleman, what is it, a gentleman C in the 50s and 60s now is an A. Right, grade inflation, a huge problem. Right, this all came out of uh, this agreement, and in the midst of this agreement, uh, students stopped studying, and they don't really know how to study in the same way anymore. So, isn't this a funny picture that, um, as in the midst of, of academic life, in the midst of performance, it's dropped dramatically. Study habits have changed significantly. In fact, they say it might even be worse if technology wasn't here, because. Um, What's saving some of the students is, is things like Microsoft Word where you don't have to type your papers. Right? If you were a student in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you had to type your paper and you had to type your footnotes. Right? Most of us have no idea. I have no idea. It takes a long time to type footnotes. You have to get out a ruler. And I remember teachers and professors that I had tears in their eyes about going through the process of typing up their footnotes to papers, which took... And it's incredible amount of time. We're relieved of all that, which is one of the things that saves us from spending less hours. And so we're spending less hours, and our quality goes down, and academia is suffering, and the product that's coming out is suffering. But no one says anything, because the job security of the professors is protected, and the students don't get bothered in advancing in their careers. And so everyone remains quiet, because they get what they want, but the goal of what they're actually supposed to be accomplishing is not getting done. And so on it goes. Sounds to me a little bit like the church. 
about our relationship with one another and with Christ. And we come and we say, I'm getting what I need, getting what I want. Don't push in too much. Don't get in my way. Right? I can just leave. I'll go to another church. And I, maybe I don't want to engage conflict. Maybe I don't want to say something really hard to you or challenge you in a significant way. And so we have this little bit of detente and we keep going and pretending about our faith. But the quality and significance of us as runners and racers continues to diminish. And as a result, in the midst of that, we don't say anything, but we just become terrible, terrible racers. The uh, huge study on youth and religion in the early part of this millennium, which people are still wrestling with, it was such a big study. It's the National Study on Youth and Religion. And uh, it evaluated the situation of uh, religion amongst uh, today's youth culture. The interesting part is, uh, who do you think came out on top in terms of what, what religious group in America produces the most significant and faithful youth? Presbyterians, of course. Right? No, we don't. Sorry. Right? You know who does? Uh, the Mormons do. By far and away, without a close second competitor, they produce youth who uh, drink deeply of their faith, and it affects deeply most of the aspects of their life. Latter-day Saints teenagers are significantly more likely than their peers to hold religious beliefs similar to their parents, 73%. Attend religious service once a week, 43%. And talk about religious matters in their families more than other teenagers, 80%, once a week or more. They rate the importance of religious faith in shaping their daily life as extremely important and engage in practices like fasting and other forms of self-denial. Compared to other teenagers, Mormon youth participate in more religious practices of all kinds and are much more articulate about church teachings. Mormon teenagers receive a regular presentation of religious motifs in a way that many other people, even conservative Protestants, ordinarily don't get. I hate reading that. How are the Mormons doing a better job than we are of raising our children in our faith? Here's what uh, one person involved in the study and writing about it said. Uh, Ready? Mormon teenagers tend to be the spiritual athletes of their generation, conditioning for an eternal goal with an intensity that their generation, uh, I'm sorry, an intensity that requires sacrifice, discipline, and energy. Long before their classmates are smacking their snooze alarms, more than half of Mormon teenagers are rolling out of bed at 5 a.m. every single school day for four years straight in order to attend seminary. Seminary is frequently taught by a parent and typically involves reflexive practices like journaling about one's life and spiritual growth as well as practical advice on how to plan and save for a two-year mission commitment to service and evangelism. What are they saying? Number one, Mormons do a way better job of training their children to adopt and practice their faith. Number two, why do they do it? Because they actually train like they're in a race. They discipline themselves. And what they call seminary is actually high school students getting up at the crack of dawn every morning to attend two hours of theological education before they go to school for four years straight. That's a pretty serious commitment. It's even more serious when you consider that commitment is in preparation for most of the males to then make a two-year commitment to missionary service before they go on with the rest of their life. 
that's some serious training. That's some serious discipline. And it challenges me to think, well, how serious am am I about the race of my faith? And how serious am I about training my children in the race that they're engaged in? This is going to be one of the prominent areas of discussion coming here for Trinity Harbor. Because there's no way that I'm going to let, well, <laughs> I'm not competitive at all. No, but, but you realize, right? So what, wanted to, what, what, what did I want to say? I want to say, there's no way I'm going to let the Mormons be me, right? That's a lousy reason to do anything, right? A much better reason is to understand that by disciplining ourselves in the way that Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 calls us to discipline ourselves and to train our youth, we will inevitably do practices that are similar and as a result will produce children that drink deeply of their faith and go on to do great things for their faith and in their faith. Not according to the American dream, but the kinds of things that are heralded in Hebrews chapter 11. Are you casting off the weight and sin that clings so closely to you that you may run well? Right? Let me save you time. No, you're not. Right? The National Study of Youth and Religion says youth are leaving the church in droves. Why? Because their parents aren't exhibiting for them any faith that is worth reproducing. Right? If that's the case, if we're not running a race, then our kids aren't going to know how to run a race. And they're going to drop out a lot sooner. Number three. We're not in a sprint. We're in a marathon. Right? This is a race run with endurance. Now run as fast as you can to get to the finish line because you don't necessarily know when your finish line is coming. Run with endurance. I ran cross country in, in high school and ran the mile and two mile in, um, in track and saw a lot of guys over the years take out the race too fast. And on a number of occasions took out a race too fast myself. Which means that uh, eventually, in the midst of the race, your legs are going to give out because you've spent too much of your energy. You've gone into an aerobic deficit before the race is over, and you're going to pay the price. My coach had a phrase for this. I can still remember. He had a thick Long Island accent, and I can remember him saying somebody would be running their race, and you could see the moment where their legs just kind of give out, and their speed lessens to half, and he goes, up. Oh, that guy just got handed a piano. And that's what it kind of looks like, that somebody just put a piano in that guy's hands and he looks like he's suddenly carrying a piano. And it's a miserable place to be, but we tend to sprint rather than actually develop strategies and skills for the long haul of racing. How often do we find ourselves in a place, oh, I feel distant from God. Or, oh, I really want to focus on this spiritual discipline. And so we buy a book, we jump into a reading plan, or we download some sermons, and that lasts for a week or two or maybe three. But inevitably, we've acted like we're doing a sprint. And it's gotten very old, and it recedes to the background. And then we find ourselves, again, exercising no spiritual discipline. The race is not to the tortoise. It is very much to the hare. There are two things in this same section, in the same clause, that we also have to realize when we speak about the endurance of the race. And the first is that the race, notice the language of the author of Hebrews, is set before us. The race is not an option for you. 
The sovereign God has established that this is how you will move forward in pursuing Him and being pursued. And in this, you have to run. The question then is not whether or not you will run. The question is how you will run. Friends, there's nothing more miserable than running a race when you're out of shape. I I speak from experience. There's, There's nothing more fun than running a race when you're in really good shape. How much of your misery in your life from day to day is the result of you, you're in this race. It's set before you. You don't get to opt out of the race. But you're in terrible shape. And it's laborious every day because you do not adopt disciplines and regular practices that would enable you in that race. Secondly, the race is not only set before us, but it's set before us. Not singular you, but us plural. The race is something that we endeavor in together. There are times where I remember being uh, in training and just thinking, I cannot run up this hill again. I grew up in a place that was very hilly. And you could have easily an elevation change of 800 feet very quickly. And so your quads would be burning. In training, you'd think you'd be done, and some, you'd feel somebody come up behind you, and a hand would hit your back. And there'd just be a little push for a little ways, and you kind of catch your breath and keep going. And that is the best way to run is in a, is in a community, is in a team. We're much more like, in, in track, it's individual some, in, to a degree, but in cross country, you can have the best runner in the whole uh, conference, but your score depends on getting five runners across the finish line. That's like the church, right? Our score isn't based on our elite runners who happen to be really exceptionable at their spiritual races, right? Our race is dependent on how we run the race together and how we finish it together in a corporate endeavor. Well, as we consider our race, I want to come back to the question that I alluded to in the beginning. The question is this. If if Jesus has run this race, right? This is where we're headed. Then why do we run? Can't we just say, Jesus, great race. Well done. I will applaud you all my days. Why are we called to this task, this labor? Jesus is called the founder and pioneer of our faith, meaning that He has taken on the course that has been laid out, and He is the first and only person to date to have successfully navigated it. And in successfully navigating the course of faith, being holy, expressing faith in all things, heeding the will of the Father, denying Himself at every turn, in that He earns for us the same reward. And so we realize that we do not run to win something. He's already done that. We run instead to experience something. To make this point, imagine just for a moment that Jesus was not Savior of the world, but that He was a fitness guru. That He showed up in the ancient world and He was, he was in pretty good shape, right? Six-pack abs, right? All decked out. And He said, I've come with a new training program for the Olympic Games and anyone who takes up my training program will be more fit than anyone else and will win their races. And so he, he trains and he wins a number of races. He wins the ancient version of CrossFit and is declared the fittest man alive. Right? So people start to flock to him. Right? Your training program is it. Right? You've done it. 
You've succeeded. You've helped others to succeed. And then these people who flock to him say, you know, give us your program. Uh, let us share in your level of fitness. We want to look like you. And they proceed to spend all of their time going to plays and eating pork grinds, but not adopting anything that Jesus has actually done. Right? Hopefully the point is, is fairly obvious. Right? How often do we like to celebrate what Jesus has done on behalf? And even though the New Testament says emphatically, the way you experience what Jesus has done on behalf is to engage in the very same course is to pick up your cross and to die to self and to run your race with integrity. And yet we say, no, Jesus has done it. I'm going to watch plays and eat pork grinds. And then you, you don't get in shape and you wonder. right? It's not, it's not actually that hard or surprising. He has accomplished something that we cannot accomplish. We're not talking about earning something or finding ourselves in better stead. But Jesus in his love and mercy has run this race this incredibly difficult race, far more difficult than our race, to extend to us the benefits of that race. We experience those benefits by participating in the race that he has run, and yet we prefer to sit on the couch. And we wonder why it seems distant and foreign to us. This is brought further home when Jesus is told, is said to be the perfecter of our faith. In other words, he's the person who has brought it to successful conclusion, something that we cannot do. How does that help us? How does looking to Jesus as the runner help us to run our race as well? This founder and pioneer, this perfecter of our faith. It says that the reason that Jesus ran his race well was for the joy that was set before him. So in other words, Jesus looks ahead and there's some joy out in the distance that keeps him motivated and running in the same direction faithfully. That is what he pursues. And What is that joy? Well, first and foremost, the author holds out to us that it is the victory, that it is being faithful to what God has called him because the reward that the author highlights is being seated at the right hand of God the Father. Of course, God does not have hands. It is a figure of speech to say that Jesus has received the most honor in all of the cosmos because of the course that he has run. And so he's won this this title, this honor, this exaltation as a result of his course. But at the same time, it's not that he didn't have glory before. Right? Nor does he suddenly become, a, the father says, oh, finally, well done, my son, I love you now. Right? The father and the son and the spirit existed in perfect community before. The one thing that Jesus gains, the one thing that he attains that he did not possess before he runs his race, is you. Right? He endures the shame of the cross. He comes and becomes a man and labors on this earth for years and decades for the joy that was set before him. And part of that joy was that you would be one. Now he desires for you to be wrapped up in that love and in that mercy that he has run his course for you. He says, to do that is to run with me. And in running with me, the weight of all the busyness in which you've engaged, the sin that clings to you so closely, begins to fall away. 
And you begin to run more effectively with me and in that to experience more of me. We were the joy that was set before him. Now he is the joy that is set before us. Will you run to experience more of him? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you ran your race perfectly. We cannot begin to fathom the difficulty that was before you, the challenges that existed, the hurt, the pain, the anguish of the cross, the cry of the Father turning his face away. And yet you have run your course so that creation might be regained, so that love might be demonstrated, so that justice might be served, so that forgiveness might be distributed, and that we might be one. We thank you that you would make us your joy, and that is something that is profoundly difficult to fathom. It is also something that is wonderfully uh, enriching and encouraging to know that we are loved to that extent. Let us find ourselves in that love and not weighing ourselves down, not engaging sin that clings so closely, but Lord Jesus, send your Spirit and encourage us in our race. Let us to throw these things off and to run. To run with great freedom. To run with great passion. To run with great joy because we look to you. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen. Offer up your hearts and your minds as the ushers.